What I want to talk to you about is the creation debate. The creation debate. You might think, oh, why doesn't he just say the creation? Well, I want to talk to you about the ongoing dialogue, if you will, that humanity has had about God and about creation. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. If you know your Bible, you know that it begins with an account of the creation, does it not? Well, okay. We all live in an age of technology. We've got technology here and it's just like, we think nothing of it, it's all around us. And technology is just science applied to solving the practical problems of life. That's, that's, that's what it's all about, right? And so we've, we live in an age where there's been a lot of discoveries in physics and chemistry and math, and that's allowed us as human beings, as, as societies and cultures to develop complicated machines like that. You know, that's a complex machine, right? Um, to invent powerful drugs. Some of us take some of those drugs on a regular basis. And we can peer down into the structure of atoms. And we can, you know, ask and answer questions about the vastness of the universe. And that's the world that we live in. And human knowledge and human ingenuity have accomplished a lot. Now, there are a lot of things that you and I enjoy because of all the science that has taken off in the past, let's say, 150 to 200 years. And it's been good, right? And because of the huge success of technology in addressing the comforts and the conveniences and the needs of human beings, we assume that your physicists and your chemists and your mathematicians have better answers to questions about life's origin or life's purpose. They're our go-to people, right? And scientists, you know, your physicists and mathematics people and chemists, uh, they seem very eager to offer opinions about big questions. And uh, they'll take on some real biggies, you know. Is there anything beyond the material universe? Where does life come from? How did matter become organized and structured rather than just a chaotic mess? Does God exist? And their speculations and ideas and philosophies have deeply influenced modern thinking. They even probably influenced your thinking more than you might want to admit. Some of the assumptions and ways that you address issues. Now the average person, and I think we're all pretty average here, I don't know, maybe you're above average, uh, but the average person might assume, and I think is justified in assuming, that discussions and questions and this debate that I've talked about, about how the universe came about and how human beings came to be here are 
modern day questions. Now, these are modern day questions, okay? We ask these questions only now, because only now, of course, do we have enough understanding about the mechanical functions of the universe, you know? We've got the little the, the, the electron microscopes that can look down into the atoms, and we've got the telescopes that can look up into the universe. We've got all kinds of great tools we can measure things with. So because of that, that's why we're having these discussions about the creation. Where did it come from? What's it all about? I think that's a pretty common assumption. These are modern day questions. Only now do we have enough information to even start asking these questions. However, if that's where you're coming from, if you know, that's what you think, then I hate to tell you that you're, you're kind of wrong. And uh, the creation debate, this ongoing discussion about creation has been going on for a very, very long time. People were debating the same questions back in Jesus' day. And some, I'll go through a few of them, were successfully promoting the same sort of answers, materialist type answers, that we hear now in the 21st century. So in some ways, there's really nothing new under the sun. And uh, I think it's important to take a look at the scriptures. And we're going to focus on the New Testament. I'm not going to go back into Genesis. I think it's important, though, to recognize that the Church of God, God's apostles, God's teachers, have been engaged in this debate as well. Not just making blanket statements that say, well, God created everything, which is true but it doesn't address some of the other aspects of the question that come up and are being presented, even in our own day. Now that debate, and this is probably why people think it, it's a new thing, the debate was kind of put on hold, pushed to the side for about mm, 1,200 to 1,400 years uh, because of the tremendous power and the influence of the Catholic Church. People still kind of discussed it, but it was kind of... You, you know, you didn't, you didn't disagree that the whole discussion was carried on in a you know, very different manner, if at all. So it's kind of sidelined, put on the back burner for about, hmm, let's say, 1,300 years. Split the difference, okay? And uh, now it's back in full fury, though. The creation debate is back in full fury. I've made some propositions that, you know, this has been ongoing. And I've made some propositions that it was happening during the days of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Paul, Peter, all those. Well, let's, let, me, let me back it up with a little bit of uh, info, all right? Let's talk about what I'm going to call materialism. You know, the idea that matter is all that matters. Let's talk about materialism going way back. We'll go, get in the Wayback Machine. We'll go into the Wayback Machine, and we're going to go back to the first century and the whole Greece-Rome kind of culture, right? Because that's what the church was basically growing up in. 
materialism in the first century Greco-Roman culture. So the arguments that were put forward in the days of Jesus and Peter and Paul and the setting for the first century church, so all the members of these congregations in Philippi and Corinth and Thessalonica and so forth, had already actually been out on the table for centuries. Let's take a look at a few. Democritus. Democritus. Okay, that's a, a, a name of a Greek natural philosopher. Okay, And he lived and died about four centuries uh, before Jesus even came on the scene. So this guy, Democritus, wrote a lot about the structure of the universe. You know, what, what, what makes it all up? And he proposed that it was composed of atoms. So you might think this is just something that was discovered in, you know, 18 whatever. No. Uh, it's a little more complicated than that. Democritus proposed way back that everything we have around us was composed of, he called them atoms, infinitely tiny particles that could not be further subdivided into smaller units. You, know, you keep divide, 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 divide. You end up with something that can't be further divided. That's an atom, okay? That's where we get the word atom. Of course, then we figured out a way to break the atom into parts. <laughs> but at some point, the concept holds. You, you reach a point where you can't keep breaking it into pieces. That's what this guy promoted, what he talked about, okay? Um, that theory, as you, you know, I saw you all nod your heads, Oh, yeah, Adams. That theory has been shown to be fundamentally true after 2,300 years. Basically, he was right. And uh, he also had some theories about how it all came to be. Okay, so we got these atoms. Where'd they come from? Okay, let me throw a couple of things at you that this guy, Democritus, was, was talking about. Democritus's position was that all things only appear to be designed, to have meaningful structure. That's only an appearance, that's just an illusion. They actually came about through blind processes. This is what he said, okay? Uh, does that sound familiar to you? Random chance is the reason we ended up with everything and anything? You can go back to a long way, all right? 2,300 years and that's what was on the table. Just a random collision of particles. In other words, not consciously guided by any kind of, you know, with any kind of purpose or goal. Okay, another thing that this Democritus guy promoted and was out there on the table is that the physical universe always existed. So this is something that was you know part of the cultural milieu at the time the physical universe always existed matter well it's eternal okay it's not created and therefore if matter is eternal and it's always existed then you don't need what a creator do you you don't need a creator if matter has existed forever everything just is You've probably heard people say, it is what it is. You know that? 
And sometimes I, you know, I find it amusing and it can be a helpful statement at, at times, but it, it's actually a terrible philosophy. <laughs> it just is. Uh, everything just is. That was sort of where this guy Democritus was coming from. Okay, so he's one. That's just one. All right, let me give you another. Epicurus. You ever heard of Epicureans? You know, Epicureans, they uh, usually are pictured as people who they really like gourmet food, they like fine wine, and they like casual sex, right? Epicureans. Okay, this is a philosophy that was very, very much a part of Greek culture. Not the only one, but it was definitely there. So this guy, Epicurus, uh, he lived from 341 BC to 270 BC. So this is getting a little closer in time to the days when Jesus was alive and doing his ministry, right? This guy, Epicurus, believed much the same as, as Demo Dem Democritus regarding the substance of the universe, you know, what stuff was made out of. But he's important, and I threw him in here because the manner, because of the way that he applied these theories to ethics and morality. You might think that believing what you believe about atoms or, you know, whether things have existed forever or were they created, ah, eh, well, it's all kind of, you know, you know, people can talk about that stuff, but it doesn't really matter, does it? Well, it does because it affects how you approach ethics and morality. So this guy, Epicurus, let's take a look at some of the stuff that, that flowed out of this. Because reality and stuff and the universe is random, it just happens because it's unguided. He taught that, well, if that's the case, then we should just basically learn to enjoy the good things that life has to offer and stop worrying about anything because it just is. Now, if that's your approach, you know, you just enjoy the good things in life, well, it kind of boils down to whatever you find enjoyable, right? Okay, because reality, the universe is random. Here's another one. It can't contain objective justice. If everything's just random and just happens, if it is what it is, then you can't really have objective justice. Justice that's the same for you as it is for you. You might have your own concept of justice and you might have your own, but an objective justice that applies to everybody? Nuh-uh. Not in a random universe you can't. So we shouldn't worry about justice, right? Because it's a, not a possibility in a random universe. Okay, here's one more. And this, to me, this really gets to the core of it. Fear of death. This is Epicurus. Fear of death is the number one reason why we fail to enjoy life and all the wonderful things that life has to offer. Because of fear, we're afraid of death. Specifically because we fear the idea of judgment in some sort of afterlife. So convincing yourself of or accepting that after death there's absolutely nothing is the best way to get the maximum amount of happiness out of life. Because you won't be afraid of anything anymore. So those are some examples of how what you believe about the substance of the universe affects how you're going to live your life, morally or not. Let me give you one more, okay? This guy is interesting, Lucretius. 
He died around 50 BC. So that's 50 years before Jesus was born. A little closer. He's a Roman. He's a poet. And he took these same ideas. He really didn't come up with anything new. He took these same ideas and he made them popular. He made them more accessible because he was a poet. And people loved poetry. They didn't have TVs and they didn't have radio and they didn't have, um, they didn't have Spotify and all this other stuff. But they loved poetry. It was a form of popular entertainment. So Lucretius put, it, put some of these same ideas into poetry. Let me read you a short excerpt from a poem of his called Of the Nature of Things. Okay? Of the Nature of Things, a poem. So this, in the original language, probably Latin, would have rhymed and probably sounded a whole lot better. But here it is in English. <clears throat> you ready? Poetry here. Neither by design did the tiny particles establish themselves, as if by the action of a mind. Instead, the atoms continued to collide against one another in a random process, until at last they combined fortuitously in the great arrangements of which the sum of all things we see is created. Now imagine that much more flowery, rhyming, you know, with a really good orator, you know, giving it to you. Uh, he made it more popular because that was a form of popular entertainment in the culture of the day. When people were looking for something to do a night on the town, very often they'd listen to a lecture. Or they'd go to the theater. Or other things. But listening to poetry was a big, big deal. So those are just a few examples. But you know, to make the point, those are, those are probably sufficient. So when Jesus came on the scene, or when Peter or Paul were sent forth, the creation debate was already a part of the fabric of human society. It was out there. People were talking about this stuff. Okay? Um, this would be true in the land of Palestine, Israel, which was dominated by the Romans and by Greek Hellenistic culture. You've probably heard something like that in you know background sermons. You know where people talk about the you know the setting, the cultural setting of the day. It would also apply in Greece, where the churches were of you know like Philippi and Thessalonica and Laodicea and so forth. This was Greece. Um, those people would have been immersed in urban cultures, very urban cultures uh, and societies, where Epicurean philosophers and poets attracted large crowds in the marketplace, teaching and proclaiming their theories. Now within this first century setting, the Bible, specifically the New Testament, makes a number of statements about the universe and how it came to be. And I think the depth of understanding that's found in some of these verses stands out more clearly when you think about it with all this other stuff going on in the background. You know, instead of just listening to, you know, you listen to a telephone conversation and you hear someone talking, assuming they don't have their, their phone on speaker, which is very annoying, but if someone's talking, you only hear what they say, you don't hear what the other party's saying. You can sort of piece together what the conversation's about, right? But if you could hear both sides, you'd know exactly what they're talking about. Well, I think that Understanding the culture, what's going on in society, helps us understand some of the statements that are made and what's going on in the first century. 
And my point is simply this, to remind you, this is not something new. And the Bible does speak to the issues. Go to Hebrews 11 and verse 6. So Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith, without belief, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Hmm. Well, you could breeze right by that and say, well, yeah, of course, <laughs> duh. But thinking of the setting and what's going on in, in you know, the social dialogue of the day, there's some stuff packed in here. Believing God's word about his existence as creator, because the Bible presents God as creator and God wants you to know that. Well, that's where we get our ideas about judgment. Because judgment means there has to be a judge, right? And judgment is where we get our ideas, our ideas of justice, right? So, without God, there really is no point to a lot of the stuff that we ramble on about, like uh, social reform. <laughs> Without God, it doesn't mean anything. Climate reform, it doesn't mean anything. All you're overcoming, kindness, it's irrelevant. Mercy is irrelevant. Without God, everything is meaningless. We went through a scripture reading in Raleigh of the book of Ecclesiastes and, you know, really it kind of hammers it home. It's sort of grim. <laughs> go through the book of Ecclesiastes and it can be kind of a oh, heavy weight on your shoulders. But that is what it's telling you. Without God, everything is meaningless. And think of what we talked about earlier with the Greek philosophers that we looked at overriding that nagging notion that it, people have about judgment is at the heart, in my opinion, is at the heart of the reasoning and thinking of an atheist. And their reason for engaging in very active participation in social debate. And I think that's why atheists really do get in your face sometimes because to more fully convince themselves, they seek to convince others. There's no judgment. Because you have to override that nagging feeling in the back of your mind that this does matter. And you can, you can sear your conscience, of course you can, but you have to override something. So let's take a look at some more key issues. Go to Colossians 1. I think this is probably the most important other than John first chapter, this is probably the most important uh, section of scripture on the whole concept of creation and what's it all about. I'm not going to go through first John. We could uh, probably will at some other date, but not today. So Colossians chapter one, and let's just read verse 15 through 18. Okay, I assume you've read this before. I hope you have. And here we go. The Son. That's, of course, speaking of, of Christ, speaking of Jesus. It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, 
things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. There are a few key phrases in here that I want to just draw out. I, I could probably do more, but I'm going to limit myself to four, okay? Four, no, five key phrases, all right? Five key phrases. One, before all things, right? There's that phrase, before all things in there. Okay. There is a supreme being, God, responsible for the created world. What it's saying here is that God existed before the material world, right? Therefore, the material world is not eternal. It came into being only because God acted. So there we're addressing some of the issues on the table. The universe is not eternal. It was created. Okay. Invisible. Invisible God. Why throw that in there? Well, because God is not part of the material world. He's not made up of atoms or molecules or electricity or anything that you can measure. It can't, he can't be detected by sight, although he can make himself known to you, but you can't go up and find him by looking. He can't be found by sound. Where is God? No, or taste or touch. Invisible. If someone demands some sort of proof that God exists using these methods, show me something I can see, hear, taste, touch, that's going to fail because God is beyond the material creation. He is, as it says, invisible. And as I mentioned, God makes himself known. He does make himself known. How? How does God make himself known? A variety of ways. The primary one is his word. His word, right? Um, also his actions in the visible world. By that I would probably refer to prophecy, for example. Okay, so let's move on to another one of these phrases. It mentions the sun. The sun. Well, why is that important? It says, you know, that through him all things were created. So it's sort of a delegated authority, if you will. The son is the member of the God family that performed the act of creation. And that son is Christ. So this is a subject that I think more related to his sacrificial atonement for sin. It gets into that more. I mean, that's a whole other sermon. I'm not going to go there. Um, but he also by just being mentioned here, it brings into this discussion the, his, his role in God's establishment of authority and of governance or government and judgment. Right? Where do, you, where do those things come from? They don't bubble up from atoms. They just don't. 
you know, ask someone, where do you get the concept of, of love or mercy based on what you see in a microscope? You don't. These are created things. Okay, one more. Well, two more. <laughs> Principalities and powers. This is a very similar concept, just taken like a little bit further. Principalities and powers. I did a little word search or word study on these, these various words here, you know, thrones, principalities, etc. Um, what it tells me is that in addition to matter, atoms, God is also responsible for the existence of a big number of things that you cannot put under a microscope, like what I mentioned before. Uh, things which are very real, like government or authority, but you can't put them under a microscope. But I don't think anyone's going to deny that they exist, but you can't measure them. Others, I think, more general in this would be just the fact that there is structure in the universe instead of just chaos. There's structure, there is organization of matter, there's authority, there's judgment. You see hierarchies in nature and in human culture. There's a consciousness in the mind. Scientists have no way to explain how you are conscious. It's a mystery. They can explain how the neurons fire in your brain, but why you're conscious, they have no idea. Maybe they'll come up with a theory at some date. I wouldn't put it past them, but no, not, not right now. Uh, freedom of will. Measure that. Give it to me in a bottle. One more, okay? It says held together. Through him all things are held together. Um, that's another subject, but speaks to this, that God is actively involved with his creation. He didn't just make it and then let it roll on its own, which is another theory mention a little bit. So those are some issues, aren't they? Those are some real issues, and the scriptures actually get in there and bring you some information about real issues. So you're in Colossians, right? Drop down to chapter 2, verse 8, if you would. Let's take a look at the setting here in Colossians. What's, what's, what's going on here? In Colossians 2, verse 8, it says, see to it that no one, and he's writing to this congregation here in Colossae, Colossia? Yeah. Colossia. I'm going to say Colossus, and that's not right. In Colossia. And he's writing to this congregation and says, See to it that no one takes you captive, who captures your imagination, your thoughts, your ideas, your, your suppositions, through hollow and deceptive philosophy. So that's the larger context that Paul's drawing out here. He's saying some of the stuff that he's saying in writing is to counteract ideas and popular philosophies that were floating around in the culture of the day and in the congregations of people who were forced to interact with this on a regular basis. And you are too. In that setting in the first century, Epicureans were not the only ones that God's people had to contend with. Okay? There were Stoics. They had different ideas. Wrong, but they had different ideas. There were Gnostics different ideas. Wrong, but they have, and scriptures address these as well. There were Jewish traditionalists and more, okay? And Paul and the other apostles were constantly butting heads with a wide variety of competing ideas. 
most of which are still alive and kicking today. And if you remember back when I mentioned this guy, uh, Democritus, in some ways what seems very, very, very modern isn't really all that new, is it? Atoms, molecules. Yeah, that, that idea has been on the table for a long time. So the Bible engages with these issues, but the Bible does not attempt to systematically dismantle Epicureanism or the Stoics or the Gnostics or Marxism or Darwinism or capitalism or any of the other isms that are out there. That's not what the Bible's up to. That would be getting off track. What God does is provide you with the truth. He gives you simple, bold statements, but when you dig in, you see that there's a lot more there underneath, right? But he gives you simple, bold statements that directly address some of the fundamental assumptions um, of humanity's false teachings and traditions. Uh, four of them that come to mind here that we've already talked about, but just by way of a reminder. So humanity's false teachings and traditions say matter is eternal. Well, God's word says, no, I created all matter. Humanity's traditions and philosophies say, no, I mean, movement in the universe, the fact that anything's going on must have come from something that came before. It's all just a chain reaction that's eternal. And God says, no, I began all motion. God spoke and it existed. We see organization in the universe, but even in our own day, some of the most advanced physicists, chemists, mathematicians say, it's an illusion. It's all just, it's in your mind, it's an illusion. God says, no, no, no. I am the organizing force in the universe. One more. This I think is very important because I think it eats away at the heart and soul of everybody on the planet. Human tradition basically teaches that human life has no great purpose. It just is. It is what it is. And God says, no, no, no. My justice and my love provide meaning for life. So, you know, you get these proposals, and for each proposal, there's a counter-proposal. And God doesn't fill in all the little ways in which it can, you know, feather out and come up with, ah, yes, but what about, what about, oh, what about this? And what about that? And the Bible doesn't address every single one of those little fingers. He leaves that actually up to us to thrash out the details, doesn't he? He gives us the big truth, but we got to kind of like connect the dots, don't we? You got to think about this stuff. There just, I mean, there's too many specifics. Um, and, it, you know, and I think by keeping it simple in the way that God's word does, his word is applicable in all different cultures and in all different situations because the principle is the same. The details can change. Our society has its own details. And frankly, you give too, too many specifics to people and it just provides loopholes. 
What's important and helpful to understand, know, and remember is that God does not leave you alone. You are not alone in the universe to figure out what it's all about. You're not alone. You have one another. That's why you're gathered here today. So God gives you his church. You've got four things that God gives you. If you like lists, you can write four things that God gives you. One, he gives you his church. He gives you one another. Now sometimes you might, oh, I wish God gave me something better. But you got one another. And the church is, as the scriptures say, the pillar and the ground of truth. And it reminds you, there's a lot of benefits to the Sabbath. And you've probably heard sermons on that before. But one is that getting together like this reminds you that you are part of something greater than yourself. You are not alone. Another thing God gives you, within the church, God appoints teachers, pastors, administrators, etc., etc., etc. You are given teachers and guides and helpers within the church. Their job, if you will, is to help you. I hope that we help you. If we if we can do things that we're not doing, let me know. <laughs> but the church, which is headed by Jesus Christ, has within it, and Christ has appointed teachers and guides and helpers within that church. As Paul says in Romans, how, how will they know the truth if it's not proclaimed? How will they understand it if it is not taught? Okay, another thing God gives you, number three. God gives you his objective word. You are very blessed in a way that not all people have been throughout time. God gives you a personal copy of his own written word. Aren't you blessed? The teaching provided by the church is not a matter of personal opinions. Now, clearly, you know, I'm going to have my own perspective on things. I, I don't want that to override or overpower the truth of God, and it ought not. Any of the teachers in God's church need to be wary of that. It's not a matter of personal opinion. But God does in his word. He provides you some proofs within his word um, that the human senses can use to validate that this word is true. So there are actually some touch points in reality that you can look to. This is good to know, and God provides them to you. You can use these to validate that this word actually it's real. What are those things? Well, give me an example, just out of many. The testimony of many witnesses to the resurrection. Okay? There's something baked into the Bible, and that is about proving that this word is valid and true. Another one I mentioned a little earlier. Prophecies made and prophecies fulfilled. Big deal. I think it's a very important deal to establishing what you know previous generations have called the authority of Scripture. I'm just going to put it as, is this for real? Yeah, it is, because no other book can do that. There's other things, uh, the correlation of Scripture with human history and so forth, a variety of things that you can use, you can measure, you can weigh, I guess. <laughs> no, well, not in the same way you can dust, but you can use your senses to validate God's word. Okay, number four. One more thing that God gives you. The power of his Holy Spirit in you. Very important. 
The power of God's Holy Spirit in you gives you insight and discernment and the ability to understand. You know, you, you can throw the facts at people all, all day long and they won't get it. You know that. God's Holy Spirit is an essential ingredient that God gives you the gift from Him to you that gives you insight, discernment, and the ability to understand. And uh, I think it's important to remember that this supernatural assistance, because it is that, it's not measurable. As Jesus said, you can see the effects of the Spirit, like the wind, but you can't see the Spirit. It too is invisible, but you can see the effects of it. But it itself, you can't find a, a spirit atom and pluck it out of the universe and analyze it on an electron microscope. You can't do that. But you can see the effect of it. This assistance which God gives you is administered also through his church, through the laying on of hands. That kind of circles back. So let's take a little, let's go back to the creation debate and talk about the creation debate today. We've talked about the past. Well, that's all well and good. What about, what about today? What's happening today? Okay, so, um, you know, making, making points and, and discussion about the nature of reality in the universe is not what the average person discusses in the hallway at work or while gathered around the water cooler grabbing a donut. Am I right? You know, you're hanging out with friends. Do you talk about the theory of, of uh, you know, relativity or whatever. No, you don't talk about stuff like that. Um, however, it is a subject uh, our society addresses often and regularly. And there are two influential places where the creation debate continues. One, within the education system. Big deal and two, within popular entertainment. Movies, and novels, television, video games, and books. 95% of all biology teachers are atheists. Well, these are just facts I dug up on the internet, so you can take them for what they're worth. <laughs> all right, the internet's kind of a, well, I don't know about that. I, I'll, I, I like Wikipedia because, right or wrong, it tells me what people think. So 95% of biology teachers are atheists. 60% hmm. of college biologists. Whoa. 66% of research scientists. Even scientists who claim to be Christians, even scientists who work within Christian universities, very often say that there is no evidence of God to be found in nature. I can believe in God, but there's no, there's no evidence. So it's a faith thing, right? And uh, in other words, saying that, you know, God, God's out there, I, I, I believe, but he uses indirect processes. Big one that comes up is blind evolution, right? And, uh, He's not actively involved in the ongoing function of the universe. This is a very common way of approaching scientific discussions among Christian 
university people, even in Christian universities. So they will say God may be involved, but there's no way to observe it, no way to measure it, which is kind of true, but kind of false at the same time. Go with me to Romans 1. And uh, let's take a look at Romans 1, verse 18 through 22. <clears throat> and just think about this when we read this. Why is Paul telling people this? Why? Why bring this up? I think it's because of this stuff that's going on in society all around them. He says this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godless and wickedness, godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Now I've, I've stayed away from the Old Testament, but the book of Proverbs, for example, says something about this, doesn't it? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So you're, you're a fool is what God's saying. Okay. What's happening here is, I think, analogous to what we see in our society when people talk about intelligent design. Scriptures tell us, okay, here's what you got to think about, folks. Now, when you look around you, I think the universe is clearly the product of design. So, on the other hand, the university academics and, you know, the folks like that that I've talked about tell students that basically this amazing device in your hand came about randomly. That is not a conclusion that is derived from logic or mathematical possibilities or probabilities or anything you've observed in life. No one says that because they've observed something chaotic and confused by its own source become organized into a complex thing. No one has observed that. They'll throw evolution at you, but no one's actually seen evolution happening. It's an assumption. And God says to this stuff, look, I'm telling you people, don't be an idiot. Don't be a fool. Don't be bullied. That's a big part of what goes on with this whole debate. Don't be bullied. How can you be so stupid? 
Don't let anyone do that to you. Don't be a fool and don't be bullied. Because evidence of design and purpose is everywhere around you. You know it. I know it. Most people know it. you got to be, as it says here, willingly blind, willing yourself into blindness not to see it or admit it or accept it. It can be seen and it can be known. And I brought this up because it can feed into your understanding and acknowledgement of and your faith in God being present and at work in the world. I think we start with God's word, you know, someone who is driven by faith, who has help from God's Holy Spirit, but you also can think things through. You can look at the world around you. You can say, no way, man. No way. You got to be kidding me. So the education system basically considers it their full court duty to uh, press upon people the materialist viewpoint. And they present it as if it was a neutral viewpoint, but it's not. It's a very dogmatic viewpoint. And as parents and as the church, part of our job is to actively and persuasively present the biblical perspective. That's, uh, that's your, one of your takeaways. We got to do that. You got to talk to your kids about stuff like this. I'm not talking about getting into metaphysics or astronomy or anything, but giving the biblical perspective on things. Um, that's the only way that they're going to know the alternatives and accept them as legit alternatives. It's part of our job as a church, as a pastor, as a parent, grandparent, whatever. So let's talk about the modern entertainment complex. Kind of like what Eisenhower said about the you know, <laughs> industrial military complex. The entertainment complex, because that's what we've got going on in our country, and it's scary. The modern entertainment complex affects everyone. I mean, you, you try and convince me that you're unaffected by the entertainment and media in the country. Uh, you get a, you, you work cut out for you. It affects young and old alike. And it doesn't get into all the physics or the math. Entertainment often presents the conclusions as a given, and it does so in really, really um, appealing ways. Uh, what it, you know, it uses very subtle persuasive techniques that you don't even recognize. One, um, it, it makes a positive association between some of these conclusions with beautiful women and gorgeous men. It uh, presents them in context with great acts of heroism and things like that. Um, it engages your emotions with intriguing and exciting plots that twist and turn, but uh, very often end up causing you to naively swallow some non-biblical assumptions. Take your average science fiction movie. It's full of non-biblical assumptions about the nature of the universe, but it's fun to watch. Ain't it? And you can't tell me you haven't watched them either. I'm not saying you don't watch them. What I'm saying is beware, thoughtful. So we were in Romans, go to, uh, we're in chapter one, drop down to verse 23 and 24. It says this, and 
exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degradation of their bodies with one another. So <laughs> what Paul's saying here is the stuff that people are getting into with regard to the nature of creation and all that leads them down the primrose path and they end up with all kinds of sexual perversion. So the entertainment complex basically is, is offering you a deal. And it asks you to give up an hour of your time, maybe every night, maybe once a week, I don't know, in exchange for a little bit of titillation, some excitement, some adrenaline pumping, and in exchange for that positive, maybe dopamine firing, in, in exchange for that positive feeling, you have to listen to our spiel. That's the deal you're making. You have to think critically about the stuff you watch and listen to. And I think, you know, you can turn it into a game. Can you, can you see, can you hear the deceptions that are in there? Are you aware of what's being pushed at you? Do you even know the issues? Part of what I'm trying to do here is draw them out a little bit and say, these are some of the issues. Do you even know the issues? Uh, so to help you in this, God gives you his word. He gives you his church. Um, he gives you his ministry to teach and explain. And he gives you his Holy Spirit to discern. But you have to use them. You have to use them. So what about the facts? What about the facts? What are the facts? Go with me to 2 Peter 3. Let's take a look at verses 5 through 7. I want to talk about this in a way that's a little different, maybe you've heard before. But Paul said, I'm sorry, Peter says, they, scoffers, non-believers, etc., etc., but they deliberately will say, where is the coming that he promised? And you talk about this stuff that's going to happen. Where is the coming? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters, also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Okay. Again, I did another word study on what he's saying here. And uh, it says, okay, everything goes on as it has been from the beginning. And the word that's used there is arche. Arche. That's translated beginning. And, you know, when you look in the scriptures, it's uh, very often translated beginning. Okay. But it can also and is also translated as foundational principles. So the world has continued on from the RK. So therefore, Peter scoffers, I put it to you, could be saying something along these lines. Everything continues as it has in past times based on the foundational principles of creation, the RK of creation. In other words, 
There is no beginning, there is no end, there is no creator, and there is no judge. Okay, facts. Up until the 20th century, scientists almost unanimously believed that all the evidence pointed to a universe full of matter that had no beginning. Supposedly it had always existed. But then the Hubble telescope came along. You heard of that? Anyone heard of the Hubble telescope? Yeah, you've heard of the Hubble telescope. It came along and astronomers could now see that the universe was expanding. You've heard about that, right? Okay, so if it's expanding, blah, 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 you do the math, that means it must have a beginning when you do the math. Now, Albert Einstein, anyone heard of Albert Einstein? Okay, so Albert Einstein, who believed that the universe was without a beginning, that's what Albert Einstein believed. The universe was eternal, it had always existed, it always was, there was no beginning. He was invited by Hubble to look through his telescope. And after seeing the evidence, and this is actually recorded on film, I think, Einstein said, I was wrong. The universe does appear to have a beginning. So the evidence was pointing towards a beginning. And later on, this was developed into what's now known as the Big Bang Theory. Has anyone heard of the Big Bang Theory? Okay, see this is all part of popular culture. You've heard about all this stuff. Since then, all your astronomers and physicists, and Einstein included, have worked frantically to explain how the something of our universe came out of nothing by some process, some material process. That's what they're hard at work at without the need for a first cause. Basically, they're attempting to show that the nothing before the Big Bang was really something. We just don't know what it was yet. In other words, the evidence must be wrong. Because we know in our hearts that there is no God. So what are the facts? And who cares anyway? So conclusion, beliefs about creation, they are going to affect your ethical and moral behavior. They just will. And the Bible has a great deal to say about creation. We haven't, I mean, I could have, in the New Testament alone, I had dozens of scriptures, but I spared you. I only, I only picked out four, four, four scriptures out of many to show that God's word does engage in the essential questions of proof. What is the nature of proof? Evidence, reason, intelligent design is just an exercise of reason, thinking, and faith, which you gotta have. The scriptures are not based on ignorance. Scriptures did not come out with these statements in an environment where no one even thought to ask the big questions because they were too dumb to know, too ignorant of science to know. The questions were on the table. We got more facts in the 21st century, you betcha. More data. But the questions remain the same. And God's word has the answers. 
And God's church and God's ministry and God's spirit provide you with the guidance you need.